We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and go like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance will ever get to be a completely red Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. Whatever but more uncertain now. Uh, listen, Blue Ivy is six years old. Beyonce is She tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, don't go to Louis Vuitton today. In five, four, That's why you need three, to take a meeting two. with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello, and welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Eddie Palmer, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Steve Jeffries, Yogi Paywall, Sean P. McCarthy. And uh, today we'll be profiling the one and only Bernie Madoff. Um, a man who is widely known in popular culture as being the most honest man in finance. Um, <laughs> he is responsible for the biggest Ponzi scheme in uh, history, uh, totaling about $60 billion, though the uh, actual amount that he stole was closer to uh, 10 to $20 billion. And with the, we'll get into it, but the margin is just um, uh, that margin between, you know, 10 to 20 and 60 is the uh, insane returns that he was promising everyone. So everyone thought they had way more money than they did um, when they did not. But, uh, yeah, and we should mention, it is canon that we are talking about the man who destroyed George Costanza's life savings. <laughs> Madoff. Madoff! <laughs> I was going to save that for the end, but we. <laughs> I was going to list everyone who got ripped off by him, or uh, an abbreviated list, and then <laughs> end on George Costanza. But it is important. Great minds. That, yeah, yeah. I like how the uh, Madoff Ponzi scheme definitively proves the Kevin six degrees to Kevin Bacon rule because even he was wrapped <laughs> up in the Ponzi scheme. Yeah. You know, one of the people listed. So I mostly for this episode drew from uh, The Wizard of Lies by Diane Henriques mm -hmm. uh, or Diana B. Henriques. And she lists a bunch of people who were stolen from. And one of them, she just says the ex-wife of Michael Douglas. <laughs> She doesn't give a name. <laughs> she, um, yeah, The Wizard of Lies was adapted into, and uh, the book was written in 2012, and it was adapted into an HBO movie mm -hmm. in 2017 starring Robert De Niro, clearly practicing for the Irishman. <laughs> He's, um, it's, uh, the main difference between that movie and The Irishman is that they, couldn't afford to make Robert De Niro look young, so he's old the whole time. Uh, yeah. Man, my favorite scene in Wizard of Lies is when De Niro goes, you explaining Ponzi schemes to me? You explaining Ponzi schemes to me? In the mirror. Just over and over again. It's a great scene. Diana Henrix is, is also in it. Um, just uh, pretending to interview Bernie Madoff like she actually interviewed it, but she's doing it with Robert De Niro. Mm. Um, it's interesting. She does a good job. Uh, so without further ado, you guys want to get to know, uh, the, the life and crimes of Bernie Madoff? 
Yeah, you know, in the in the canon, actually, Jerry Seinfeld didn't lose any money with the Madoff scheme because he uh, gave it all for lunch money for his high school girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> One of my dreams is going up to Jerry now and asking him, hey, can I get your daughter's number? Because she is about the age that 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 uh, Seinfeld's girlfriend was and I am about 12 years younger than Seinfeld was when he <laughs> dated a high schooler that would be like the perfect thing to throw in his face if you were like a guy going after Jerry's 17 mm-hmm. year old daughter oh yeah I I remember watching Seinfeld in high school and I didn't realize at the time that that guy on that TV was dating someone my age <laughs> <laughs> what a life so we looked it up and michael richards is the poorest character and also in real life mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah. true unfortunately he's a, a meager 30 million for some reason he's not working a lot now <laughs> yeah had- but you know actually being able saying the n-word as a white guy has a 20 million dollar value <laughs> so he actually you have to add that to his net worth because that it feels as good to a white guy as a $20 million net worth. How great would it have been if Michael Richards was at the Capitol coup? Like just, and not even as <laughs> Michael Richards, just straight, I'm Cosmo Kramer, and I happen to be, like just the bit of him being at the Capitol coup and just on the phone being like, Jerry, they're storming the Capitol. Like well, he bursts just... through the door and then they shoot a lady behind her. <laughs> Some people, some people are in, like, shoot inside that, like, the inside the Senate chamber. A few of the protesters are like, "Hey, look, it's Michael Richards over here," <laughs> and they all gather around him and like make him say the N word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they, they shoot that lady through the neck, and then yeah, Kramer does the door opening thing and like goes to a mini fridge and gets something out of AOC's office, and then just goes back through the door. Doesn't comment on the dead woman on the floor. Wears a mask, but no pants or underwear. I think I think he would do just kind of like a. <laughs> but no, that would be a good idea. Is they could just pay Michael Richards to go to any economic mm-hmm. uh, grievance protest and just be like, "Look, Michael Richards is there. This is clearly yeah. a white supremacist rally." <laughs> Madoff. So. Bernie Madoff was born uh, April 29th, 1938, in Queens, New York. His father was Ralph Madoff, uh, who was kind of a, uh, I guess you could say, loser. He worked in uh, various sporting... Well, I mean, it was the Great Depression. Everyone was kind of a loser. So um, he worked in various sporting goods companies. Um, uh, First, he was at Everlast, um, and then he tried to make his own sporting goods company and uh, went out of business. So then he uh, began working as a stockbroker. Um, and then in 1963, uh, Ralph Madoff, Bernie Madoff's father's uh, firm was cited for being delinquent for oh. uh, file for not filing the required annual financial statements and had to shut it down. And the family saw this as another one of their father's business failures. So this is kind of the background of what Bernie Madoff grew up with as kind of a father who, was scraping by trying to make things work couldn't always make ends meet you know in kind of a poor part of queens right. um he actually did have kind of a hard scrabble upbringing could you just play that audio drop again madoff, madoff! 
Yeah, so exactly like that was the last words of the two people who killed themselves as a result of the Bernie Madoff Ponzi. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so his dad is kind of like a bumbling businessman, and that is the upbringing that Bernie Madoff has in terms of being a successful entrepreneur in the post-depression era. Did he have, did Madoff have like kind of like a Bernie Sanders style upbringing? Um, you mean Jewish in New York in the forties? <laughs> no, I mean like his like first gen immigrant living in like rent controlled whatever in New York. Mm, that's a decent uh, question. I, I think actually his grandparents um were the ones who immigrated. Oh okay. Yeah. Not the same. Yeah, yeah, a little different, but still, um, but still similar. I mean, you know, same location, same time frame. Um, yeah, it is like first name two di- two different Ponzi criminals on a different <laughs> scale. One who realizes that he can just exploit the vulnerable to buy himself three houses, mm-hmm. and one who thinks much bigger. One promising twenty percent returns. One promising ponies and healthcare. <laughs> one of them has a lake house. The other doesn't. Listen, I've said it from time and time again. You can't trust three Bernies, Madoff, Sanders, and Mac. All three of them, untrustworthy. So he attended uh, Far Rockaway High School, which, interestingly, was the same high school that Carl Icahn attended. Um, And, incidentally, the physicist Richard Feynman. Uh, He met his future wife, Ruth Alpern, there. Uh, He attended the University of Alabama for one year, then... Uh, transferred and finished college at Hofstra University, where he got a BA in political science. Now, wait a minute, Andy. It sounds like you're saying that he went to a tough school in Queens where they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. <laughs> <laughs> what if Eichen made Madoff into what he is? Sure, yeah. He Madoff definitely had, or has, I guess, kind of a complex about um, people who were like kind of mainstream rich, or I guess the the sort of wasp, um, establishment that was in place when he came up, uh, which is why he sort of he started his company by himself. Um, so he his parents wanted him to go to law school, and he briefly attended Brooklyn Law School, but he um, dropped out to pursue a Wall Street firm uh, that he created called Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities LLC. Um, and he started this business uh, while he was still a senior at Hofstra. Um, he. Uh, had saved up $5,000 from selling lawn sprinklers door to door and working as a lifeguard. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Those are his paper route stories. Um, so many, so many questions. Yeah. His, his whole thing about the lifeguard, like he, I guess he was so fond of that time that at one point or he had a, um, at his Palm beach house, uh, one of his three houses that all Bernie's have, um, he had a statue of lifeguards looking out onto the ocean. What? And the reason the media knew about this is because after the scandal broke mm-hmm. uh, in 2008, someone stole it and then uh, later returned it with a note that said, uh, give back the things you stole, Bernie. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, he started up his company and, you know, he played into that mythos. Uh, he the when he started in the stock market in 1960s, it was kind of it was called the go-go years. Uh, 
the markets were kind of heating up for the first time after the uh, kind of slump of the Great Depression and the war. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, early on, he traded over-the-counter stocks, or OTC stocks, which are penny stocks from small startups looking to raise capital, uh, which didn't meet the requirements to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange or its sister exchanges. And what was convenient about these is that it was very difficult to... uh, for customers to look up the value of the stock because they weren't listed in the papers. Um, in order to find out the value, you basically had to call your broker and take them at their word. Mm-hmm. And so early on, the stocks were the penny stocks were actually making a ton of money um, uh, in a way that's kind of akin to the dot-com bubble of the 90s. Sure. Uh, it was actually estimated. It's It was hard to estimate how much... Um, money the penny stocks were making at the time like historians have tried to and it's difficult because all the documentation about them is so like obscure and buried but they estimate that otc stocks had returns of up to five times that of the dow jones industrial average in the early 60s um and so uh madoff got like friends and family to invest in his um and his company and they probably legitimately saw something like 20% returns, which were the kind of returns that he promised throughout his career, like, you know, 15 to 20%. Mm-hmm. And at the time it was possible that those were the actual returns that he was actually doing legitimate trading. Um, I would just add, if you know, um, if you know your market history, then that compared to the Dow in the sixties is amazing. Yeah. Well, it's so, this is like 61 and 60 or 60 and 61 and then part of 62. Um, Mm. And it, it is amazing until later on in 1962. Yeah. And I do also want to mention for our listeners, kind of our helpful uh, spotting a Ponzi scheme um, guide. If, uh, if you're promised returns of 15 to 20%, that means it's safe to put your life savings in (laughs) (laughs) and also your, your children's college fund (laughs) Because you know, fifteen to twenty percent is the sweet zone. This is this is the government yeah. bonds return right here. Right, right. Twenty five percent, that person's full of shit. Ten percent, they're ripping you off. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your asset should be making minimum fifteen percent a year, minimum. In seriousness, though, like I guess what stock market is like seven percent average S and P five hundred. We've talked about this before. The long run average annual return is about 7% for the S&P 500. Hmm. Yeah. So like any investment over like 7 to 10%, I get very skeptical immediately. I mean, this is the exception. Um, <laughs> he, uh, Madoff actually, he violated what um, was known to market regulators as the suitability rule where a broker is forbidden to sell their clients investments that are too risky for their individual financial circumstances because of that rule he should not be selling to uh, a lot of the people he was selling to but he just ignored it hmm. um and <laughs> kept doing it anyway and then uh in 1962 there was what was known as the little crash um in may the stock market had its biggest drop since 1929 and the worst hit were all the penny stocks that were wildly inflated oh, wow. um you know they were like petfood.com um, they just uh, turned out to be absolutely worthless and crashed. And Madoff would have had his reputation ruined if he passed on these um, these losses to his customers, but he managed to hide it 
and maintain his reputation by spending um, all of the 30000 in capital that he'd saved up in his first two years of business um, to buy back the stocks from his clients at their original prices. Oh. And so he, he managed to uh, kind of still look good. I don't know how he explained it, but um, yeah, in that process, uh, he nearly wiped out his company because like with his capital wiped out, it's, right. it's hard to you know pay the rent at your... <laughs> Uh, at your little brokerage firm. Um, so he managed to stay afloat with a $30,000 loan from his father-in-law, Saul Alpern. And, um, what which is what? That's probably 300,000 or so. Yeah. Today. Yeah. I'll look it up. Or what more. if, what if Lee Harvey Oswald was just a guy who lost all his money on OTC penny stocks in 1962? <laughs> <laughs> And I just got way too into this CIA bullshit. Nobody just checked on <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald's portfolio. Oh, it's a little like being one of the penny stock YouTubers mm-hmm. from today. Right. But he was like that in the 60s. 30000 in 1962 is equivalent to $258,505 today. Oh, I mean, this guy, would be, this guy would be an initial coin offering guy now today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. major into crypto i mean but to <laughs> to put that into full perspective a quarter of a million dollars is the loan he received from his dad to stay afloat like that is mm-hmm. hey you know when you're struggling in business and you make a couple of mistakes and your parents give you a quarter of a million dollars to then stay afloat <laughs> that's how you know when you're doing all right in the business game how does it's it not in business without really lying <laughs> it's like um it's not quite the the game genie of some other uh, billionaires we've right. recently covered, but yeah, it's substantial. Friends and family, I'll see. It is interesting where you said his dad's business has failed, so he got this from his dad in law. So yes. that's like that's the other aspect of uh, rich people, friends and family connection is sometimes we cover billionaires who are just really good at fucking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just fuck their way into a rich family <laughs> where it's like. Either their wife or their husbands, you know, parents just give them a whole bunch of money uh, to start a Ponzi scheme. I don't have much research on this, but I did run across something that said he had an affair uh-huh. um, in the it was either the 90s or the 2000s. And the person who had an affair with him described him as a beast. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we should have on the website. We're going to add all these categories for billionaires. So we should mm-hmm. have good at fucking yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> we can determine yeah. that by whether or not they married into money. Bernie Madoff definitely eats the butt. You know he gets he gets scrumptious <laughs> yeah. down there. Oh yeah, that's for sure. He's willing agree. willing to do what it takes to get those fifteen to twenty percent returns. <laughs> His wife didn't divorce him when he went to prison. She visited oh, him there man. after, right. af, even after one of the sons committed suicide because oh, of it. Geez. Like that's a guy I, who definitely eats ass. That's that's when you know you're putting it down. <laughs> when your your son commits suicide because of you and your wife still won't leave you. Just because... You just I, can't get enough. Just because I'm in prison and our son has killed himself, I promise to you my love will grow 20% during this time. <laughs> yeah, so actually government lawyers um, uh, got the impression that this might have been the beginning of his Ponzi scheme, even though there's not... Bernie Madoff, for some context, claims that his Ponzi scheme began in the early 90s and that that was um, the when he stopped doing actual trades with people's money 
and just straight up um, lied his way through things. But there are various points where there's evidence that it had been ongoing before that, um, possibly in the 80s, and possibly as early as 1962 when this incident happened. Um, but he survived it. Um, and in 1969, Bernie's brother, Peter Madoff joined the firm. Uh, Peter was a lawyer. He actually went to law school, um, and finished it and kind of gave Bernie a complex and Bernie would even just, uh, like degrade him in front of, uh, other people. Really? Uh, just like put him down, mm-hmm. just be like shitty older brother. Um, but Peter was largely behind uh, automating trades and setting up the computer system mm-hmm. and was referred to in some corners as the company's computer genius. Um, though Bernie Madoff claimed that Peter knew nothing about the Ponzi scheme. And um, even to this day, Peter has never been charged with any crime. Uh, and though that was in uh, 2012, he might have been since then. Uh, but I, I don't believe he has, um, in the early 1970s, uh, Madoff set up an informal and unlicensed mutual fund arrangement with his father-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, where his father-in-law would send him money from relatives, friends, clients, and Madoff would invest it. Um, and he used the first two rules of fight club to promote this fund, uh, cultivating mm-hmm. the idea that it was an exclusive fund that only specific elite clients would be allowed to invest in. And so that made more people want to invest in it. Um, Functionally, he was working as an investment advisor, uh, though he never got licensed as an investment advisor. He was only licensed as a Mm stockbroker and he never listed his company as an investment advisory company. Um, And that was the case for the entirety of his career. Um, And at the the time, go ahead. That's the key to doing a good Ponzi scheme, like against rich people anyways, is you have to have like the velvet rope outside the club with the line. And then you have to pretend like you're letting them in past the big line uh, into the exclusive club where they get to jump out of a hotel window after losing a billion dollars. But, you know, and I think we're probably going to get to this later but kind of a thesis that we've noticed uh, with a lot of these people, but with Madoff in particular, is that the mistake was they targeted uh, rich people. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> some of the consequences yeah. happen when you steal money from rich people as opposed to just uh, average Joe investors. You know, I just found out that uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg lost about $22 million from this. And it's crazy that this wouldn't be the worst financial scandal he has, whereas Quibi would definitely be fuck him over a lot more. <laughs> uh in this early company, he recruited two accountants from his father-in-law's firm, uh, two fellows by the name of Frank Avellino and Michael Bienes. And there was a frontline documentary in 2009 on Bernie Madoff. And Frank Avellino refused to be in the documentary because he had an ongoing lawsuit uh, due to the fallout of the, the Madoff affair. But Michael Bienes was happy to talk to frontline uh, about everything he didn't know and um, also how great it was making lots of money for Bernie Madoff. And uh, I'll just kind of let him introduce himself here. It was only about two and a half million in the account. That was big money to, to me. We were only taking a small clip off the top. That's all it was. Couldn't take more. We thought that was the rule. And 
We never were pigs. That's one thing that kept us going. We were never pigs. <laughs> they were never pigs. So, <laughs> so this is when like um, there were more like promised returns of eighteen percent, and you know they would pocket a percentage or point or two from those returns. And at the time, Madoff claimed that his investment strategy that got him such high returns was quote riskless arbitrage, hmm. which mm-hmm. um, is what he got into after kind of. Uh, all those penny stocks blew up in the 60s. Right. And the idea of riskless arbitrage was you would just buy a product like a stock in one market where it's kind of cheap and then sell that stock in a different market where it's slightly more expensive and pocket the difference. And uh, I guess before there were computers, there were kind of discrepancies in prices between different things. So it was conceivable that he could do this and make money from it. Mm-hmm. Um, when Michael Bianis was asked... Uh, how this process worked and how they could promise returns of 18 to 15 percent. Um, he said this. 17, 16, even as low as 15. What made you think that he could return 20 percent? I don't know. How do I know? How do you uh, yeah. split an atom? I know that you can split them. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> how does an airplane fly? I don't ask. Did you ask him? Never. <laughs> the, the last thing you hear from the doctor right before you go under for surgery. Why would I ask him? I wouldn't understand it if you explained it. Something with arbitrage between bonds and stocks and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> uh, there was later analysis uh, filed in court in 2012 that found that even in 1977, many of the arbitrage frays were... Many of the arbitrage trades were largely fictitious. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Um, the way he says bonds sounds like he's talking about Barry Bonds, the baseball player. Bonds. <laughs> and the steroids and the. I do just like that entire speech. Just the, how the hell would I know? Yeah. You just you feel so comfortable giving over your child's college tuition right. to a man speaking like that. Yeah, in the book, they were like, yeah, uh, Michael Bienes, you know, he was uh, the sharp accountant. And then you hear him speak. <laughs> it's like, was he? <laughs> Sound like he just slaying his ass off. Yeah. Right. It seems like he was just a convenient person for doing crime. Oh, yeah. D- have you heard his it voice? <laughs> if I wanted to rob someone, I'd call that guy just off voice <laughs> principle. I think I think you're just being anti-Semitic, Yogi. <laughs> Isn't he Italian? Is he Jewish? What? It's he's like this central central casting like crime accomplice. <laughs> Great yeah. for you. Yogi's so. like something about him just sounds untrustworthy and shifty. <laughs> I feel like he has secret plans that he's not informing me about. I wanted to mention though this kind of debate you mentioned earlier, Andy, about like did the Ponzi start in the '90s or earlier. It is kind of one of those things where a bunch of different people all have the same incentive to pretend it started in the 90s, where I imagine Madoff and some of his associates might have more criminal exposure than they already have if it's dated back to the 60s or the 70s. And also the SEC uh, SEC and all of these prosecutors look like complete fucking idiots because this thing went on for four or five decades and was only exposed by the 2008 (laughs) financial crisis. And, you know, we'll get to some of the the, uh, failed investigations, but you can see why everybody would like to just pretend like, yeah, this only started in the 90s. Yeah, he basically gave them like a paper trail to uncover the Ponzi. Well, yeah, we'll get into that. Um, 
so around this time in the 70s, uh, uh, Evelyn and BNS were making up to 10 million per year just for passing on clients money. You know, they would just find people and be like, hey, we got this great uh, 18% returns. Uh, invest with this Madoff guy. He's a genius. And they would. And um, uh, yeah, he described it this way. You're making with Madoff? Easy. Easy peasy. <laughs> like a money machine. I, I always said I never lifted any heavy weights. People said to me, even recently, oh, you must have worked very hard. I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> oh, come on. I said, no, I didn't. Hell yeah. I never worked hard. We were like an airplane. An airplane, you know, flies itself. But if you make a mistake in your calculations, oh, boy, you do a John Denver. You run out of fuel. <laughs> now, <laughs> interesting note there. Uh in the people who were screwed over by the Ponzi scheme uh, were the descendants of John Denver. Oh, wow. <laughs> Fucking classic. That rules. Fuck them kids. Did you kids. ever think to yourself, this just is too easy, this is too good? I said, I'm a little too lucky. Why am I so fortunate? And then I came up with the answer. My wife and I came up with the answer. God wanted us to have this. God gave us this. <laughs> Sean, you're telling me that guy doesn't sound like a guy you do crimes with. Come on, bro. That sounds like exactly the person I want on my side during a bank heist. I love I love his justification because in his world in his world, God decided that he needed the money more than the Metropolitan Council on Jewish Poverty, <laughs> one of many victims of Bernie Madoff's fraud. That uh hundreds of millions was stolen from. I like how he keeps coming back to an airplane analogy. Mm -hmm. I don't know how airplanes oh, yeah. work. We were in an airplane. They crash sometimes. <laughs> um, By the way, I never worked hard is the official motto of Grubstaker's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, even if this, uh, even if Madoff's firm was uh, doing legit business uh, or wasn't doing the Ponzi scheme at this point, it is likely that um, it's been found that even early on, the firm was using money that people gave for investments as capital within the firm, mm -hmm. uh, which is illegal um, and is kind of a mini Ponzi scheme, um, mm. though they were easily able to get away with it just by paying out profits. Um, right. And uh, Evelino and Bienes would refer to their investors as lenders instead of investors. Like they're lending our company money mm. and then we're giving them returns. <laughs> um and they doing? Oh, Go ahead. Were they doing all of this in Florida or New York? Because I think, if I remember correctly, he was in Florida for a bit. Uh, they were doing this in New York. He had he eventually once he got a lot of money. Uh, I don't know. I don't have when exactly, but he he bought a bunch of houses. You sure. know what you do when mm -hmm. you make a lot of money. One of them was in Palm Beach, um, where all the legit above the board people live. <laughs> um, right, and. Uh, yeah, he had another one in Montauk. Uh, so in 1979, Madoff became a member of the NASD committee that helped create an electronic system uh, linking all the regional stock exchanges within the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the idea was that customer orders would be uh, routed seamlessly for the best price. And um, that work kind of uh, led into NASDAQ and uh, later in the 90s, um, I'm sorry, in 1987, Madoff actually 
1990, uh, Madoff became the chairman of NASDAQ, which mm. uh, further bolstered his reputation as a legitimate and respectable <laughs> businessman. Uh, There's so, something uh, below board going on at NASDAQ. <laughs> you can tell because of who their chairman is. Uh, interesting thing about NASDAQ, it was, it was like almost completely designed by the government. Oh, really? Yeah, there was an act of Congress to tell um, the SEC to basically just, all right, we need to create an all-electronic trading system. Hmm. So make them do that. And so they passed this thing called National Market uh, National Market System, I mm -hmm. believe it was, the uh, legislation in NMS, and that created NASDAQ. Huh. So NASDAQ is like basically like a government psyop to try and get the New York Stock Exchange to do electronic trading rather than people on the floor yelling things. Oh. And NASDAQ is all electronic, whereas New York Stock Exchange, even today, has pit trading and stuff. Huh. Huh. Well, I, I'm learning things from our podcast now. Yeah. Just a little factoid. <laughs> So in 1983, Madoff opened an office in London uh, called Madoff Securities International LTD. And um, great name. Yes, it was uh, framed as their office for trading in European markets. Mm -hmm. um, but its main purpose was it became a location where they could move money from Manhattan and back <laughs> uh, in order to make it look like they were trading overseas. Gotcha. And markets. <laughs> And uh, that led oh, yeah. to Madoff getting three counts of money laundering. Uh, and by 1987, the company was doing well enough that they were able to buy office space um, in this building in Manhattan called the Lipstick Building, uh, which is it's like it's got an oval shaped floor plan. Sure. Uh, it's you know, it looks like a tube of lipstick. Uh, really ugly thing that people in the 80s thought looked cool. Right. Um, of course. And. Uh, they had one floor at first, but later after, um, the shit first started to hit the fan, they had a second floor, mm. um, that became the infamous 17th floor of the lipstick building. And I'll get into that now. So in 1992, there was an investigation, uh, where a financial advisor said Madoff's 15% returns didn't seem realistic and reported him to the SEC, who then launched an investigation. This advisor wasn't directly associated with Madoff. He just saw some documentation um, and mm. uh, wrote to the SEC. And you know, Do you know what we call people who think 15% returns aren't realistic? We call them haters. <laughs> we call them jealous people who just don't understand what a true winner looks like. They don't, they don't get it. These fucking haters, they show up and they think they know better because they got opinions on what's good and bad, but they just hate. Yeah. They hate. They're just talking, talking shit on Twitter while we're out here doing shit in the real world. That's right. That's we're right. out here making moves, getting things done, providing 15 to 20% returns for our clients. <laughs> like a boss. You know, they're going to remember our names. They're going to forget your names. Mm -hmm. That's you're right. not providing 15 to 20% returns. <laughs> Totally above board. So uh, this investigation focused on Avelino and Bienes, who were suspected of running a Ponzi scheme. Uh, I don't know how they got that impression, but mm -hmm. um, 
It took place after somebody had printed out a brochure advertising their accounting business, um, stating there was no risk and high returns. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, when they found out the SEC was investigating them and why, and we don't have an audio clip of this, uh, Bienes said, oh, my God, no. What is he, insane? He knows the rule. Anyone who deals with us knows the rules, uh, which is don't print a brochure. Uh, <laughs> don't put our name. Don't put our name in writing right uh so when the sec called avalino in june of 1992 they became increasingly suspicious uh when they asked him what he does with the money uh they borrow and he stated that he invests the money in quote real estate and some securities Hmm. and nowhere in their their documents does it mention that they invest in real estate Hmm. so he was just he was just shooting from the hip with the sec um yeah his uh, improvisation almost worked out as well as michael richards did <laughs> <laughs> so uh bernie got them a lawyer who uh actually used to work for the sec named ira sorkin uh and he was bernie's lawyer once the shit really hit the fan and ira sorkin actually ran the sec's new york office in the 80s so mm-hmm. you could say he kind of knew how the game was played um madoff also created a bunch of phony records to back up the claims about how much money was in Avalino and Bienes' accounts with him, uh, which later created a paper trail that allowed investigators to determine that the Ponzi scheme was up and running well before 1992, wow. um, uh, despite Madoff claiming otherwise. And um, instrumental in creating these records was a fellow by the name of Frank DePascali, who in the movie was played by... Um, uh, Chief Wiggum. Um, really? Nick Azaria. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and he uh, used his computer skills to create this phony baloney trail of records um, for trades that never actually happened. Um, basically, uh, yeah, they, they, he, he was, he became the kind of the guy who really got his hands dirty in the Ponzi scheme. Uh, and he was the, along with Bernie, he was the other man guy who got the book thrown at him, mm. uh, once the shit really hit the fan. Um, and just because he did a racist, a poo oppression. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's what got him canceled. Uh, so Sorkin tried to negotiate a deal to allow Abelino and Bienes to, um, keep working as investment advisors, even though they weren't licensed. And, uh, the SEC figured, so the SEC kind of, the way they ruled on it was, they were like, listen, this was illegal. You have to return everyone's money. And um, they didn't even look into Madoff because he had a great reputation on Wall Street. His trades represented about 9% of all trading on the New York Stock Exchange, allegedly. Oh, yeah. Um, and... So Abelino and Bienes had to pay 350000 in fines and return about $400 million to their investors. Um, uh, Madoff actually managed to get $400 million from his friend Norman Levy, who was under the impression that he was giving Madoff the money for an investment. Uh, and so once all that money was paid off to the investors, the SEC uh, more or less was like, oh, okay, all good. Uh, nothing, 
He gave them back their money. Everything's above board now. Uh, and they closed their investigation. And so Madoff used a Ponzi scheme to hide his Ponzi scheme and it fooled the SEC. <laughs> <laughs> this was like 87, you said? Uh, this was 92. 92. 92. Oh, yeah, my bad. And Andy, you're saying all of this was legal? Um, according to the SEC, yes. Everything was above board <laughs> and totally fine. Um, it's interesting. This just about lines up with the savings and loans collapse, which I think uh, the correct thesis of our Michael Milken episode was he was also doing a Ponzi scheme, mm-hmm. but he was just better connected and uh, stealing from uh, retail investors. So oh, yeah. he got away with it and is now still worth billions, whereas Madoff is in prison for life. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's kind of tragic is that all the investors who got their money back, if they just, you know, took their money with those wildly high returns and left, mm-hmm. they would have gotten off, you know, scot-free. But they figured we just got kicked out of the best deal that <laughs> anyone could ever find. And they took that money and reinvested uh. it with Madoff. <laughs> just makes it look more exclusive. That's, That's right. all the That's SEC right. did. <laughs> Like, no, you can't invest in my Ponzi scheme. You're not good enough. You got to be better dressed. You got to be richer. You got to be more aristocratic. It just makes people want it more. Look at what the SEC tried to take from you. Okay. They hate you for your freedom, basically. All right. Reinvest with me. The investment scheme that is so good, the government tried to ban it. (laughs) Uncle Sam doesn't want you to make 15 to 20% per year because he's jealous. Uh, BNS after this happened was pissed off that he was the fall guy and he chewed out Madoff um, and as he describes it all right I said you son of a bitch (laughs) it's over now cost us a lot of money and a lot of grief and it's all your fault Bernie damn you it's your fault because we asked you should we be registered? Should we get registered? We were willing to do it. We were willing to pay any lawyer any fee. And you said, no, 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 no. And you assured us, big shot, that, that we were fine. We were just investors. When you knew damn well we weren't. After I got there, he says, look, I'm, I heard enough from you. Now, I want you to stop. You're starting to get to me. Very low, very cool. So I said, Bernie, I'm sorry. I'm just a very scared person. And let's forget what I said and go on with this. I apologize. Yeah, and I actually, I have a clip from uh, Bernie Madoff, what he said to that right there. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I'm going to the motherfucking press. I ain't coming for no foolishness. <laughs> Bernie Mac was tragically killed by angry investors. <laughs> um, so after the 1992 investigation, uh, Madoff started relying more and more on uh, Hank Azaria to automate his fraud. Um, Madoff began leasing the 17th floor of the Lipstick Building, uh, ostensibly to, quote, hold their computers. Uh, but it was really just to create a more secure environment to do crime. And it was this time that DePascali created a program to look up trades from the historical record, and then it would backdate his clients' accounts to make it look like he was making all the 
right trades to secure high returns. And so you say he uh, made up this program and would enter all these trades. And we gave the figure earlier that he stole 10 to 60 billion. But did we minus out what the actual fair market value of that labor that he was performing is? <laughs> because clearly that's worth some amount of money to yeah. make up a program <laughs> to pretend you're doing trades and to to sell hours of your time sitting in an office making fake uh, return spreadsheets. So there he like clearly he should have made some money, mm -hmm. just probably not as much as he actually made. Right. I'm right. imagining at the sentencing hearing, Iris Orkin's like, Your Honor, my client here has done a great deal of emotional labor. <laughs> Just imagine the stress of knowing you stole money from all these people and it could fall <laughs> apart at any time. Like he he deserves some compensation compensation. Bernie like Bernie's thinking of all of a whole mess of things on behalf of his clients. Mm -hmm. The mental load is immense. <laughs> Your Honor. <laughs> so Yeah, so this is this is when Bernie claims that oh, go ahead. Um Yogi, could you uh, play that uh, Bernie Madoff audio drop again? Oh, uh, yeah, one sec. I got a fucking pros of being with Slavic women advertisement. All right, one sec here. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I'm going to tell you something straight off the motherfucking press. I ain't coming for no foolishness. That's actually what Bernie Madoff said to the Aryan Brotherhood his first day of prison. <laughs> 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 yeah, there are a lot of different rumors about what his prison life was like, and one of them was that, like, some people said he got into fights. The book claims he didn't get in as many fights as were reported um, by the media. Um, but apparently he, at a certain point, became friends with a former boss of the Colombo crime family uh, to kind of get some protection. Right, because he's the kind of guy who would have to pay protection money in prison. But you do have to imagine he might just give it a go like, okay, so I could give you protection money, but what if you just invest the protection money with me and you will get 15 <laughs> to 20% every year? And then he goes like, you start the Ponzi with the Aryan Brotherhood, then you go to the Mexican Mafia, then you go it's to like the Bloods the and the Crips and you just kind of hope you die before the Ponzi within the prison <laughs> implodes. It's just... His life is just the producers. He's just doing the same thing in prison. <laughs> yeah, so this is when the Ponzi scheme really started to take off. Um, or at least this is when he admits that it started. Um, and whether or not that's true, this is when it became an almost industrial operation um, that was automated. Um they had all kinds of moving parts. You know, they had their own floor in the lipstick building to um, just do Ponzi schemes. The other floor actually uh, was his the stock brokerage wing of his company. And that's where they did legitimate trading. And whenever like people would be like, oh, let's go visit Bernie Madoff. Um, let's go see what he's doing. Um, they would go into that, which was like, you know, a nice office um lots of you know coked up 20 somethings on computers at like bloomberg terminals doing trades um and that that was all legitimate and that's where his sons actually worked um when they joined the company but have you have you guys seen the show industry no 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 on hbo oh well the that's just imagine that listeners if you've seen it is that a new one yeah it's new i'll check it out 
I heard I heard people complaining online that it was woke. So now I don't uh, know if that's real or if that's culture war. Uh, I wouldn't let that deter you. It's pretty good, actually. There's some woke stuff. Sean, people you associate with online complain that everything is woke. <laughs> exactly. Look, I would love to watch your show, Steve, but I actually do have loyalty to the Reddit board R Kotaku in action. <laughs> and I made a promise to the guys there that I wouldn't watch anything woke. Your internet friends would complain that American History X is too woke. <laughs> it's true. I am a man without a country. I'm a man without a country. <laughs> so I'm going to throw it to Stephen to kind of explain the mechanics of how this Ponzi scheme actually worked and kind of what was going on here. Yeah. So we used the term Ponzi scheme a few times and we defined it before, but let's just do that again. So it's basically a scheme where you the gist of it is you take in investments from investors and then pay out that those same investments to other newer invest other older investors like the the current you take it in from the initial ones and then you have another wave of investors and then the new investors pay the older investors and you're not actually doing any trades or anything like that if it's a complete Ponzi scheme. Uh, all of the principal balances that are coming in with which like a legitimate hedge fund would use to buy securities and hopefully earn a profit and then they get a cut of that. You're not doing any of that. You're just taking in money from some people and then shifting it to other groups of people. Hmm. That would be a pure Ponzi scheme. And at times, Bernie Madoff's scheme was that. But for the most part, it was kind of, it wasn't a, a pure Ponzi scheme because like you were saying, Andy, there was a brokerage arm to Medov's firm, mm -hmm. which was doing legitimate business operations that earned profits for the most part. Like they, they would, um, it was a stock brokerage. They were like structuring trades and stuff for people and they made commissions off of that. And that was kind of a front for the Ponzi part which was a, um, a speculative advisory firm that took in money and said they were doing specific types of hedged trades, but for the most part didn't do those. And one of the, in their advertising uh, for Bernie Madoff's firm, believe it or not, there's advertising for private equity and hedge funds to rich people. Mm -hmm. uh, they would advertise 15 to 20% returns at, a t at times in which those, those level of returns were not normal. <laughs> and they would, if you called the number uh, or emailed the email address on the advertising, on, on the advertisement, you would speak to someone who'd say, well, it's all legitimate. You see, we do something called a split strike conversion. And this is the name of a legitimate hedging technique that traders do use, but Bernie Madoff wasn't generally using. He was just saying he was doing it. But if and on the times in which he did legitimately do it, what he was doing was he would buy a basket of 30 to 35 stocks from the S&P 100, which is like the top 100 by market cap of the S&P 500, 
And then if he believed that they were going to, if he was generally feeling bullish about the market or neutral to slightly bullish in that he thought the price would increase. Right. So he would buy those stocks and then he would simultaneously sell an out-of-the-market call and buy an out-of-market put on those same stocks. And in this way, he could hedge himself by limiting his losses, but while at the same time uh, doing so at the expense of cutting away the max profit that you could get from them. And every now and then he would do this legitimately, but for the most part, he would just say he was doing it and then do a Ponzi scheme instead. So he would just tell people like, man, I've been doing so many split strike conversions and it's going great. But actually, he, he, was just taking in new, he was taking in new investments and then giving them to the original investors or anyone who wanted to redeem uh, the returns that he said they were getting. If you want to know kind of just how blatant the crime was, all the money that people thought was being invested was in a single Chase bank account. Hell yeah. <laughs> just money in, money out. Yeah. Um, I think you... Andy, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, some people, some analysts were, people obviously took notice to these, on Wall Street took notice to these insane returns. And like they were at times like double what the market was paying out in terms of the S&P 500. And they're like, uh, one such analyst, his boss was like, I need you to figure out how, how Bernie Madoff is doing this. And he's like, okay. And so he looks through Bernie Madoff's SEC filings, which they're required every quarter to file. Any any securities firm is required to file a list of everything they own each quarter. Mm. And so if you're an analyst, you can take each of those quarterly reports and then see how what they change, what they own changes each quarter, and then deduce from that what their returns like probably realistically were given all of their expenses and stuff and so he went and did that and it was never was it statistically likely and at times it was mathematically impossible that he was getting 15 percent returns based on what was actually what he said was owned versus what could be confirmed against exchange uh lists of trades um, this go this actually goes back to the introduction of NASDAQ where they said like we need a way to track every single trade that's going through this thing electronically. Hmm. So you can look at that versus what was reported to the SEC. And so what they were reporting was either just not right or it was like on a given day there would be like a hundred, say there was a hundred call options sold for the given stock. And Bernie Madoff would say, oh, I bought 180 of them. Wow. So it's just not possible. Right. So this right. guy, they he bought more than were actually sold. The analyst who, figured, who just deduced that this was a fraud basically went to the SEC, like Andy was saying. And um, he actually wrote a book about this called No One Would Listen. It's uh, Harry Markopoulos. Yeah, Harry Markopoulos. Um. They're there's like, a, he's Greek. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Those a, people an, can't do numbers. There's an anecdote in, in the book about him that um, when he was about to get married, uh, he said to his fiance, well, if we're going to get you a two-carat diamond, um, you should get breast implants, and then it's something we both can enjoy. 
species. <laughs> Madoff said this? No, no, Markopoulos, Markopoulos. the guy who called bullshit uh, on Greek boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so, that's, so that's, I guess Madoff was the good guy, is what you're right. telling yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. What I'm saying is <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, even the even the the uh heroes of Wall Street are still this type of guy. <laughs> Bernie brought uh, down imagine, by a witch imagine Madoff Madoff releases a New York Times op ed says Harry Markopolos was no angel. <laughs> <laughs> You know, guys, it's not too late to pivot this into a Bernie Madoff is innocent podcast. <laughs> that would be like a real uh, change up for the listeners. If we were like Bernie Madoff is the good billionaire, he was hunted by all the worst people. We're we're calling on President Trump to pardon Bernie Madoff. I was thinking before the episode, like, how, how could I maybe spin this that, you know, a lot of the people he screwed over were pro-Israeli charities. <laughs> and so, but it, it, it never quite fleshed out. So, uh, as far as the court case that he would later be charged for and in, in, uh, sit for in 2009, this, all the SEC would say is this started as early as 1992, which, like, you could make the case that it started earlier, but perhaps there are some political bullshit with the SEC didn't want to admit that they didn't catch this earlier. But... Uh, Harry Markopoulos reported this in 2000 and he gave them a pretty detailed report about why it was like either extremely unlikely or at times mathematically impossible to get 15 plus returns like he was saying. What One thing that um, I thought was really funny about the um, the computer algorithm is basically what it would do is it would look up all of the best stock trades you could have made yesterday <laughs> and it goes, yeah, we did that. <laughs> That's a pretty cool algorithm, though. Yeah. We did it, guys. Yeah. I did want to mention, uh, Andy, you said he's just sticking all this Ponzi scheme money in a J.P. Morgan Chase account. Um, kind of the way Madoff gets talked about a lot is lone villain. You know, like, he's the scapegoat. He's the bad guy. But oh, yeah. uh, should just be noted um, from Wall Street on Parade, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase got two felony counts that they pleaded guilty to in 2014 um, from their negligence in how, uh, quoting from Wall Street on Parade, it ignored the money laundering going on for decades <laughs> in the business bank account it handled for Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff. So, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase made plenty of fucking money on this. And I'm sure just looking at that account, they would know there was money laundering there for oh, yeah. decades. But they just looked the other way and then they got to pay a fine and slap on the wrist felony count for the bank. One of many. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the exact number, but they made millions off of him. Jeez. And yeah, anyone who was running that account would have known like there's just money coming in and coming out from this guy who says he's investing people's money, but clearly the money's just sitting in this bank account. Right. <laughs> yeah. You think there's anything wrong with that $10 billion account that just doesn't do anything, but like pay out and take money in and pay out and take money in. Money goes in, money goes out. You can't explain that. Do you think there's that one business account that handles Madoff's entire business is uh, at all suspicious? No. <laughs> Well, he did. Um, I like how his accomplice was like, "It's like splitting the atom." I mean, you can't explain. Like, I don't know how that works, but someone does. He did. Uh, I was thinking, like, um, well, splitting the atom is possible, whereas what you said you did wasn't. Right. 
You think it's weird that this account has a higher balance than the market cap of Madoff's entire company? <laughs> so, back in 1992, after uh, after his Abbott and Costello duo uh, were no longer allowed to bring in their friends and family to invest in Madoff, um, he started expanding and attracting hedge funds. Uh, one of them was Jeffrey Tucker, who was a former SEC lawyer and... Um, a guy named Walter Noel, they formed a hedge fund called Fairfield Greenwich Group hmm. in Greenwich, Connecticut. And um, they their hedge fund, when they first started it, it, was, it wasn't going very well. And then um, uh, Jeffrey Tucker told Walter, Jeffrey Tucker, a former SEC lawyer, told his partner Walter that he knew a guy with really impressive returns. And um, uh, they, they talked to Madoff and Madoff impressed them when he said he wouldn't take any fees, um, just just commission. And they were like, wow, this guy's the real deal. Walter Noel's daughters married a bunch of high-level financiers in different parts of the world, uh, which allowed them at Fairfield Greenwich Group to make a lot of connections to uh, a lot of finance people all over the world and attract investors to their fund, which was then investing in Bernie Madoff. Mm. Um, Madoff also got... European aristocrats involved with the fund, um, including a French aristocrat who we'll get to again in the fallout named uh, uh, Rene Thierry Magon de la Villichet, who... Yeah, advice for the listeners, if you hear that name, don't rent them a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> it was his office, Sean. Oh, I uh, thought it did it in a hotel. And he was very clean about it. Oh. oh. He put down a trash can. Um, I was going to say, I, I hope he left a tip for that maid. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta, don't skimp on the tip for housekeeping if uh, you're going <laughs> to go out in the uh, hotel bathtub. It was, it, it was, it was kind of misguided because like they said, like, oh, he put down a trash can to collect. So uh, I'll just get to it now. He slid his wrists when, it all, when the shit hit the fan. Um, and the story is that uh, he stayed in his office and... You know, uh, told the cleaning staff to leave early and then locked himself in his office, put down a trash can and slid it in the trash cans to collect the blood so it wouldn't get on the carpet. Right. Um, but that's, I mean, that's misguided because eventually you're going to fall over and you're still yeah, right. bleeding. <laughs> he split his wrists ho- horizontally or vertically. Do we know? Uh, it said his wrists and his upper arms. So I think mm. it was both across the road and down the street. Gotcha. I actually know a little bit about this because I wrote a stand-up bit that goes something like um, there was this guy, he lost a billion dollars, like one billion dollars with mm-hmm. Madoff. It's a lot of money. So I go, there was this guy who lost one billion dollars with Bernie Madoff and then he killed himself over it. And that's what you that's how you know rich people look down on us is they would rather die than go back to being like us. <laughs> Every day I wake up in the same financial situation as a guy who killed himself because of his financial situation. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's it's weird in the frontline documentary they, you know, had this uh aristocratic European guy who's a friend of him who was like uh, he did it the honorable, old-fashioned way to watch himself bleed for his crimes. But yeah, he he lost one point six billion for his fund, and then I think fifty million for himself. Hmm. Um, 
But going back to the 90s, he uh, got a bunch of aristocrats and European royalty to invest in his firm. Um, And so in a way, I'd say Madoff's a good guy for screwing over all these people. Um, I mean, there are all these pictures of this this French guy, you know, in a sailboat whenever they wanted their like stock photo of him, (laughs) Um, like a big yacht. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, I will say. I can't remember. This might be the first Grubstakers episode where I actually hate the billionaire less as the episode goes on. <laughs> like, this guy, he's sounding like Vladimir Lenin right now. He's stealing from European royalty. He's mm-hmm. murdering them in mm-hmm. their offices. I mean, free my man. Free man. Oh, you, you didn't say my favorite punchline from that bit, which is just like, he just, you know, he took one bite of a Pop-Tart and was like, I can't right. do this. Yeah, so I didn't want to, because this is like basically hanging out with my friends, I didn't want to do all the tags and the no, act outs. But then, yeah, the tag is like, I like to imagine that he was kind of excited about being poor at first. He's like, I get to ride on a bus. I've never done that. But then he just takes one bite out of a Pop-Tart and goes, this isn't life. And ends it all. This is going to become uh, Comics Unleashed. Uh. So, Yogi, uh, you... Uh, um, uh, I hear that you saw a sign for a uh, uh, seeing eye dog. That well, that's lost. right, uh, Byron Andy. Uh, what I did see is uh, saw a sign for a lost dog. Yeah, I'm not doing my bits. Let's move on, guys. <laughs> so, Andy, I heard you've been going to a lot of uh, slaughterhouses, and this makes you think about the French Revolution. <laughs> now, uh, Mr. Palmer, I heard uh, you've got a new idea for a children's attraction at local playgrounds. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, climbing gym for children where they. Uh, so, so Yogi, I heard you have a joke where the punchline is watermelon. <laughs> I was going to do that one. If, if you heard me stumbling to the dog one, I was like, do, I was about to do the watermelon one. And then I was like, no, I can't do that to Yogi. <laughs> I don't care. It's fine. It, well, it will end my career. The real listeners know. Um, so... So this is a clip of uh, Bernie Madoff when uh, he was in prison and he learned that the Aryan nation would uh, no longer protect him. I'm trying to do my job, yeah, sir. Do your job. What you want from me, man? Want me to get on the table and dance? You like me to shine your shoes? Want me to smile at you? You definitely won't let me deal the cars. You might as well call it White Jack. <laughs> <laughs> is that the Oceans movie? This is the Bernie Mac and Oceans 11, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. I just that line is always what well, got me. It was great. So, might, as well, might as well call it white check. <laughs> so uh, Madoff also told hedge funds who invested with him, uh, not to mention that they were investing with him. Uh, so again, Brilliant. Fight Club rules. Um, <laughs> so in 1999, the SEC investigated him again. They sent examiners to his firm to review its trading practices. Um, they were worried the firm wasn't properly displaying orders to others in the market violating a trading rule and uh, Madoff responded by outlining new procedures to address the findings and the SEC decided everything was fine um, there was also a, a rumor of front running um, there was an article in Barron's that came out questioning how Madoff was able to make such consistently high returns hinting that he must be doing insider trading hmm. uh, uh uh, specifically the kind of insider trading known as front running where an investor buys um, or they, they kind of get a tip that um, there's going to be a major purchase of a stock 
And so they buy it right before that um, when it's at a lower price. And then, you know, uh, a larger market buys the stock and it boosts the price of the stock you bought for your investors. Or you can do it within your own stocks where um, you buy the shares for some favored investors first mm-hmm. and then buy a bunch more shares for the rest of your investors and it boosts the price for the favored investors. Gotcha. Um, so the SEC in 2004 opened a limited investigation into whether Madoff was front running and uh, they found no evidence that he was front running. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, uh, because he was running a Ponzi scheme. And so um, <laughs> they closed that investigation. Then in 2005, um, they invested Bernie, his brother, his two sons, and his niece, who all worked for him. And um, they found that his investment advisor business had 16 clients, who I assume were hedge funds, and managed $8 billion. And legally, any firm that offers advice to more than 14 clients is required to register with the agency and undergo reviews. Uh, the SEC reported that Madoff, quote, would not acknowledge that these accounts were an investment advisory business because he received commissions from trades, not a percentage of the profits, hmm. which is the typical arrangement for hedge funds. So um, he basically was like, by your logic, um, I'm, I'm, everything's above board. And Madoff also said the firm's trades were executed in foreign markets outside of U.S. trading hours, which mm. um, actually was later found that some of his trades were uh, done during hours when it would have been impossible to trade them, like on weekends. Um, and no yeah, one noticed I, this. I liked that the initial investigation about front-running. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, they went in looking specifically for front-running when they didn't find it because he just wasn't doing the trades. <laughs> right, yeah. right. He just said he did, for the most part. <laughs> Now, Andy, when you're describing all these SEC investigations that went nowhere, uh, I think the total number was six that all went nowhere. Does this have anything to do with this sentence that I'm looking at in my notes? Uh, Quote, from 1991 to 2008, Bernie and Ruth Madoff contributed about (laughs) $240,000 to federal candidates, parties, and committees, including $25,000 a year from 2005 to 2008 to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And I guess it says here that a guy named Charles Schumer returned about $30,000 worth of uh, Bernie Madoff donations. Uh, no, Sean, uh, uh, what's the last part there? Uh, some guy named Charles Schumer returned about $30,000 in Bernie returned, Madoff donations. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it sounds like it's above board. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He gave the money this, back. So that was. As soon as he good. found out something was wrong. He gave yeah. the money back. Mm-hmm. He wasn't influenced by that at all. He, no. he gave all the money back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the eBay protection. So the SEC examined, this is uh, in the 2005 investigation, they examined customer statements uh, made over four days in January 2005 and concluded that they matched the investment strategy Madoff described, um, which I guess he described a strategy of, yeah, I make all the right trades all the time. And uh, the SEC said the findings quote, somewhat alleviated their concerns about front-running. They just ask him, like, is this your trade? And he's like, I don't know. Was it the best trade possible that day? And they're like, "Uh, actually, yeah. And he's like, then yes. Yeah. There's um, So then uh, towards the end of the investigation in early 2006, the SEC asked Madoff for a list of all the accounts through which he executed, cleared, or settled any trades. And this was a bit difficult for him because they weren't executing, clearing, or settling any trades because it was a Ponzi scheme. Right. <laughs> and so um, 
he knew that if he gave them information about what he was doing, it would lead them to his fraud. Sure, of course. But he also knew that if he refused to give them information, it would set off a bunch of alarm bells and they wouldn't and they would like dig deeper. Right. And right. so he um I don't know, chugged a Red Bull and sent them and made like a six page list of all the financial entities through which he was allegedly conducting trades along with the account number at the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation. And he also visited SEC headquarters uh, without a lawyer um, and told the investigators or like, you know, and, you know, talked to the investigators to kind of alleviate their worries. And he he kind of waxed philosophical about the art of stock trading uh, Mm -hmm. where he said, People are always trying to ask me what makes a good trade or why can you trade better than other people and so on. It's the same thing. We are proprietary traders and market makers. Some guys have more guts than others. Some of them are just stupid. They don't get frightened when they should be getting frightened. Some people just feel the market. Some people just understand how to analyze the numbers they are looking at. And so he said the explanation for his success is simple. He was one of those people who just feels the market. It sounds good to me. And the SEC never followed up on any of it. And after tears of an action, they closed the investigation in January 2008, less than a year before it blew up. I will say walking into the SEC with no lawyer when you've got your back up against the wall is really kind of the uh, Walter White from Breaking Bad desperation <laughs> move that pays off Jesus. in the end. It is like, you know, the seer, the season finale is Bernie Madoff going in and mm-hmm. just fucking improving his way through the SEC headquarters <laughs> and getting away with it. It's so clearly, obviously, I mean, this is mostly a story about one incredibly greedy, deranged billionaire, but also it's one of just bureaucrat- bureaucratic incompetence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were re- repeatedly warned over decades mm-hmm. by various people. And then given shoddy explanations by Bernie. And if they had actually followed up on those documents that he gave them at all, they would have caught him. And they just didn't. And one of the things that they mention is that, um, uh, or that uh, Diane Henricks mentions in her book is that like at the SEC, there's a lot of um, turnover Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because if you're the kind of person who like, you know, has to know enough about finance to get a job at the SEC. The pay at the SEC is much, much lower than you right. would get anywhere else in the mm-hmm. finance world. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I lean more towards probably corruption. I'm sure there's some level of incompetence, but from what I've seen, like at least some of the actual SEC investigators doubt it whether Madoff was trading at all. So I think it's kind of the thing where when you look at his political donations, they actually all start at like 91 with his initial early investigations. So it's just kind of a thing where when you're under government investigation, it's smart to just send some money around to, you know, various local New York bigwigs, and then they lean on these people and put pressure on. So you have maybe lower level investigators who might like realize what's up, but then the people above them, well, they want to get the revolving door money. They don't want to upset a powerful, make a powerful enemy on Wall Street. They don't want to do that. So, and I don't know the exact situation, but I would imagine it's uh, that kind of revolving door corruption definitely played a big part in these six investigations that went nowhere. Oh, yeah. I guess I should rephrase like, uh, I think it's a mixture of incompetence, but also, I mean... I think the people directly involved in the case probably did know on some level. Oh, but yeah. But they also, uh, 
starting one's career in high finance at the SEC is somewhat common. So like you stay there for two to three years and you go to Wall Street. Yeah. And I'm guessing, yeah, probably the there might have also been a thing where, you know, you're investigating someone like this, the higher ups are restricting funding. You know, maybe they're not ostensibly saying, hey, kill this investigation. There's nothing here. But they'll be like, oh, you know, we can't pay for you to, you know, look through these records. You know, it's just not in our budget right now. Right. Things are tight. Well, they'll just say like, oh, this is being handled at a higher level. Like that's the easiest thing where, you know, everybody at every job, or I shouldn't say everybody, but people are fine with kicking things upstairs and being like, all right, I did my job. It's not my responsibility. Nobody will get mad at me. And then your boss is happy to be like, hey, I want to get a job with Madoff later. So I'll take this off your hands. You know, this is being handled upstairs. You don't need to investigate this anymore. And they'll be like, cool, I get to go back and uh, play solitaire. So, (laughs) you know. Yeah, that higher level is God. <laughs> <laughs> so um, also in 2005, this is when Harry uh, Markopoulos, um, who's an executive at a rival country, sent a 21-page report outlining uh, all the concerns that Madoff was operating the world's largest Ponzi scheme. He had contacted the SEC in 2001, but apparently while explaining his findings to an SEC lawyer, um, the lawyer apparently got confused and couldn't make any sense of it. Uh, he just started drawing things on a whiteboard and the lawyer's eyes glazed over. <laughs> um, uh, he also sent a letter in 2001, uh, which an SEC investigator told her supervisor didn't warrant further investigation. And then when asked about it later uh, by uh, Henrichs, that supervisor said she didn't even remember reading the letter and doesn't know why she said it shouldn't be pursued. Oh, wow. Which is good. Good ass covering. Um and this led the SEC to open an enforcement the, the lawyer, case. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. The lawyer is just like, whatever, whatever, this shit's boring. Who cares? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do like something we have discovered on this podcast is I can't remember is the get out of jail free phrase. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Worked for, um, oh, do you remember uh, Alberto Gonzalez when he got quizzed yeah. by the Senate Judiciary mm-hmm. Committee and just said, I do not recall like a hundred times? Yeah. Bill Gates and his depositions, you know, lots of people. If you watch, or I guess Bill Gates did some filibustering too. He did some other stuff, but Pharrell and his, when asked about if his note signature was similar to uh, for blurred lines to Marvin Gaye, he just said, "I'm not comfortable with this question. I'm I'm just not comfortable." <laughs> you just say you're not comfortable with questions. So, um, the SEC uh, opened an enforcement case to ascertain whether the allegations had any factual basis. The interviewed Madoff again, sifted through documents and concluded that neither Madoff nor Fairfield Greenwich group were telling investigators that Madoff was making all the investment decisions. Um, And Fairfield responded by changing its disclosures. The SEC found that Madoff misled the agency about his strategy for customer accounts and withheld information about accounts and violated SEC rules by uh, operating as an unregistered investment advisor. However, Quote, the staff found no evidence of fraud, according to the SEC case memo, and uh, Madoff agreed to register his business that September, and the SEC didn't make its findings public. Uh, Madoff's scheme also nearly ran out of money in 2005. Uh, Many people started leaving his feeder funds, like Fairfield Greenwich, Mm -hmm. uh, which started charging higher management fees, um, you know, because they were getting all these great returns with Madoff. They deserve more money. Um, but people, yeah, people started leaving that. And so he almost ran out of money. And to keep the fund afloat, he borrowed money from uh, his brokerage firm 
uh, the legitimate wing of the company so that he could continue the fraud. Right. Yeah. You need to raid the the one legitimate part of your business to fund the Ponzi part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that worked for about three years. Um, I have one other quote here uh, from my notes from Wikipedia. This might, again, this might, I'm not sure if this is relevant. It might have something to do with why all these SEC investigations failed. Uh, Madoff said in June se- on June 17th, 2009, in an interview that SEC chairman Mary Shapiro was, quote, a dear friend, and that SEC commissioner uh, Elise Walter was, quote, a terrific lady whom he knew, quote, pretty well, unquote. <laughs> so I'm not sure if his personal relationship with the chairman and commissioner of the SEC as of 2009 had any bearing on this. That's true. It's worth remembering that it wasn't that long ago that Bernie was on the board of NASDAQ. So, oh, really? oh yeah. Those, yeah, the, the, the board and the chairman will meet with SEC all the time. And, you know, I, I right. guess it's common sense if you're committing a massive crime, you want to buddy-buddy up with the people who um, would be disinclined to investigate you because they're friends with you. Right, of course. And it is... And it's why it's so disingenuous when people kind of pretend that he's this lone wolf or this, uh, you know, lone gunman, lone financial fraud. And, oh, we punished him. We dealt with it. He was, like you just said, chairman of NASDAQ. He clearly had relationships with the SEC. He clearly had relationships networking all over Wall Street for decades. All of these people just can't do what they do without a wide network around them that enables them. And then as soon as, you know, it blows up, then everybody backs away and said, whoa, I can't believe he fucked us all over like that, you know? Oh, yeah. Right, right. No. So 2008, after Bear Stearns collapsed in March and uh, Lehman Brothers in September, uh, his investors got antsy and started asking to pull out their money in droves. Uh, they tried to withdraw about $7 billion from the firm. And so Madoff started soliciting more investors from people he knew mm-hmm. uh, in order to pay out the people who were asking for withdrawals. One of them uh, was former subject Ken Langone, who turned him down. Uh, he then started soliciting bank loans, but the banks all shut their doors on him. They uh, stopped lending money to Madoff. Um, you know, they, uh, they got off scot-free, but they were like, we're not going to lend money for him for whatever reason. We're not going to say why. Um, Imagine being such a pussy that you pull your money out when you're making 15 to 20% annual returns. <laughs> Just because you get a little scared about the market conditions. You got weak hands, brother. Weak hands. You're not going to succeed. You're never going to make it. Um, on December 4th, he told uh, Frank DePascali that he was finished. On December 9th, he told his brother that he was finished. And on December 10th, he told his sons to distribute $170 million mm-hmm. of the firm's remaining $200 million that was on the Chase Bank account right. uh, as bonuses two months early to all the employees, family, and favored investors. Hmm. Um, and his sons, Mark and Andrew, asked how he could distribute that money if they didn't have any money to pay investors. Uh, and Madoff then asked his sons to follow him to his apartment where he admitted that the asset management arm of the company uh, was a Ponzi scheme and, quote, one big lie. Uh, Mark and Andrew immediately Mm -hmm. contacted um, a friend of theirs who was a lawyer uh, who then called the authorities on their behalf, and Madoff thought he would have, like, a week to wind down the business. Uh, I didn't know that his sons were snitches. Right. And so... (laughs) 
he assumed that, you know, in that week, basically he would take all the rest of the money and give it to everyone mm-hmm. uh, he could uh, before it all came crashing down. Um, but uh, no, on December 11th, an FBI agent came to his house and said, we are here to find out if there's an innocent explanation and Madoff replied with, there is no innocent explanation. Um, he was actually released the same day of his arrest after posting a $10 million bail. Mm-hmm. Um, he and his wife surrendered their passports, were subject to travel restrictions, a 7 p.m. curfew um, at his penthouse condo and an ankle bracelet. And uh, a lot of the media called it penthouse arrest. Uh, on January 5th, 2009, prosecutors demanded that Madoff's bail be revoked after his wife mailed about $1 million worth of jewelry to relatives, including her sons. She claimed they were heirlooms, but a lot of them were like, you know, expensive watches and stuff. Right. And also they didn't come from like huge money. So they're not going to have a million dollars worth of heirlooms. Right. Right. Um, it has happened though. I've just become fully sympathetic to Madoff throughout the course of this episode. <laughs> like my man, my man could have made a run for it if his fucking sons weren't snitches. That's true. Like if imagine you're watching the Bernie Madoff TV show. At this point, you would want him to be like, okay, let me just pull ten million and just see if I can make things work in Venezuela. Like, <laughs> let's get on a plane, let's get the fuck out of here, and you know, see if it works out. But his sons didn't even give him a week. No, <sighs> monsters. Um, they're dead now. It's okay. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, his son felt so bad about <laughs> fucking his father over and not letting him run to Venezuela. And he yeah. should. No no cooperation. Snitches get stitches. Um, so it had been discovered uh, that $173 million in signed checks were found in Madoff's office desk after he'd been arrested. And despite all of this, his bail was not revoked. Uh, the judge just ordered that um, his mail be searched. And then on March 12th, 2009, Madoff pled guilty to securities fraud, investment advisor fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, money laundering, false statements, perjury, making false filings to the SEC, and theft from an employee benefit plan. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wait a minute. You're telling me as an employee of Bernie Madoff's, I am not going to get a pension? Oh, no. (laughs) You're going to get a pension. It's not your pension that's being rated. (laughs) I mean, maybe Some of them it is. are just like, so I guess no bonus then. <laughs> it would be pretty funny if he um, put his employees' pensions in his Ponzi scheme. How fucking mad are you if you're the guy whose uh, pens- who's pension chief investment officer uh, talked to that guy from the Frontline documentary and was like, hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> this, is, this seems like where our employees want to be investing right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like you could either, you, the the pensions benefit manager to the employee is like, you could either take a payout now and get health care or you could leave it in the fund and get 15 to 20%. <laughs> Don't you want your money to make money? That's just smart investing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, I know you're just like a simple uh, office clerk, so maybe you don't understand the big high finance stuff like I do. Okay, 15 <laughs> to 20% a year is a really good return. That's right. You can't lose with this. So, um, Fallout. Uh, he uh, Madoff claimed that he was the sole... Um, perpetrator of the Ponzi scheme and um, 
so there was no he just pled guilty to everything there was no trial uh and that way he he uh wouldn't snitch on anyone right um so he got 150 years at sentencing uh frankie pascali also went to jail the sons did not uh though uh they pretty much lost everything mm-hmm. uh anyone who made a bunch of money from the company lost everything yeah andrew madoff would eventually die of mantle cell lymphoma at uh, memorial sloan kettering cancer center he had 48 and his older brother mark madoff would hang himself in 2010 um incidentally from an article on the list.com their wives would then have to deal with lawsuits of the madoff incident because lawyers would claim that the wives of the sons should have known there was a ponzi scheme going on and like that's that's fucking that's rough that that is the reality they had to live in um just to be like yeah my dead ex-husband's father committed a crime and now i'm being sued over millions of dollars oh yeah yeah and, george you know, she lost her husband you <laughs> shouldn't be suing her <laughs> jerry i want my money i want my money jerry <laughs> the um uh, yeah the uh, like the kids it, it is kind of tragic because the kids were um they're never charged with any crimes. I mean, it's it's half tragic because on one hand, um, they were they did grow up incredibly rich, right? And all the way up until you know December eleventh, two thousand eight, um, were still very rich. Uh, and so you know they they had a, a nice life of luxury. Um, and then you know it all came crashing down on them. And they, to their credit, they were fairly contrite um, after it all came crashing. I mean, you know, Mark hung himself right. um, to kind of at least. But I mean, that you, is you an example really of being say, contrite. Huh? Hanging yourself is an example of being contrite, I would say. Yeah. So. They begin you know, the letters with sorry. <laughs> they, yeah. So they. Though they weren't the biggest victims, uh, the, or the family wasn't the biggest victims because, you know, for most of the time that this was going on, they were actually able to use the money and live a life of luxury. Whereas the other people who had invested it, you know, they thought, you know, it was in this great savings account, basically. And so, and then once they found out it was all gone, a bunch of them lost everything, lost their house. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, and an, another thing that complicated it is that many of the victims were also co-conspirators in a way, because there were some people who, you know, would put a little bit of money in and then take a lot of money out. Right. Um, mm. And all that money that they took out was clearly other people's money. It wasn't from their returns. And if you kind of knew this was a Ponzi scheme and then cleared it out before the shit hit the fan, you know, you were uh, the you're a co-conspirator, even though on paper you're a victim. And during the bankruptcy filings, um for the Madoff estate, there were a lot of people who uh, were ostensibly victims who were then pursued by the bankruptcy lawyer. Um, I think his name was Irving Picard. Uh, And Mm. yeah, yeah. And he made it so that um, (laughs) there eventually was a very adversarial relationship between some of the people who did well under the Ponzi scheme and some of the people and, and, um, but 
claimed to be victims and Picard himself. So mm-hmm. here's a, a brief list of the victims. Um, uh, after the fraud was revealed, major banks in Europe began issuing press releases. Uh, Banco Santander's optimal funds had invested with Madoff. Uh, funds affiliated with UBS might have invested with Madoff. HSBC uh, said they may have been exposed through its hedge fund administration unit. And BNP Paribas had about $500 million at risk through trades and loans to hedge funds. Uh, some of the famous victims include, who some of them we've already mentioned, uh, Baseball Hall of Famer Sandy Koufax, mm-hmm. uh, Mort Zuckerman, the owner of the New York Daily News, uh, Kira Sedgwick, Kevin Bacon, John Malkovich. Uh, that's one time you don't want to be John Malkovich. <laughs> if uh, if HSBC invested with him, that means El Chapo Guzman also lost money on it. <laughs> uh, screenwriter Eric Roth, the heirs of John Denver. Uh, again, Michael Douglas's ex-wife. Uh, the foundation set up by Jeffrey Katzenberg, the co-founder of DreamWorks, um, and Quibi. as well as uh, David Geffen and Steven Spielberg's charitable foundations, mm-hmm. um, a Korean teacher's pension, uh, minor royalty in England and Monaco, uh, two Catholic schools on St. Croix, part of the International Olympic Committee, uh, <laughs> the f- foundation set up by Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. And uh, so many Jewish charities that the Jewish Journal had a blog about the unfolding scandal titled Swindler's List. Wow. <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, George Costanza, inventor of the iToilet app. Madoff. Madoff! And I guess Madoff didn't say anything, and I guess that's probably why he's still alive. Um <laughs> or he claimed it was all him doing everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, T. Pascali, uh, Frank Hazaria, uh, he snitched on everyone to get a reduced prison sentence. Um, nice. Yeah. But, but see, like, again, this only is made, this episode, we've done almost two hours, and it's only made me like Bernie Madoff more <laughs> than when I came into it, <laughs> because this guy honored the code of Omerta. How many billionaires sure. have we found who honored the code of Omarta? The mafia doesn't even do it anymore. No. <laughs> I'm just picturing Bernie defending his sons to the judge. And he says, like, basically, they're like, they're goody good boys, basically. <laughs> Listen, they're really sorry. One of them's going to hang himself. Bernie Madoff is more of an anti FBI crusader than many leftists. <laughs> <laughs> He did make, he made a, not a, not a billionaire, but a hundred, hundreds millionaire uh, kill himself. Mm. That's true. So yeah. That's, so that's good. Yeah. I said two suicides. I, th- I said two suicides at the top of the episode, but I think it's actually three that I know of. There might even be more, but in terms of ones that were reported in the news, it was that aristocrat. It was his son, and then there was some other guy who just like recently, a, a year, a few years ago, jumped out of a window in Manhattan, um, who lost a bunch of money on the fraud. I think there was another guy. I don't, I don't have it in my notes, but um, there was some like World War II veteran who like shot himself hmm. after losing Jeez. everything. Yeah. Jeez. Again, this direct action, <laughs> four-digit body count. He wasn't a German World War II veteran. <laughs> You don't know that, Andy. It's not in your notes. <laughs> I think it was British. 
He tried his hand at Antifa for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to try and make it worth it in his mind. So that has been um a story of the one good billionaire. Or eight hundred billionaire. I I I count all the money that he's uh had, that he stole as a billionaire or as his like personal net worth because it was just in one bank account. Right. Um mm-hmm. so I'd say his net worth was uh, twenty billion. But perhaps, uh, Yogi, I understand you have some anecdotes about Bernie's life in prison. Uh, maybe we could just close out the episode with that, because I'm sure I myself am curious, and I'm sure the listeners are curious to know how are guys doing right now. What's life like on the inside for the best billionaire we've ever covered? <laughs> there's not much out now. From what I did find, though, when he was arrested, I mean, like, there's that one video of him being ushered in and he gets like shoved. And the look on his face is like, why would someone push me? There is a lot of Bernie Madoff feeling almost incredulous over the entire affair. Uh, from a 2011 interview with Barbara Walters, Madoff said that he was happier in prison than he was on the outside while under intense media scrutiny and with new york magazine he confessed that while he's remorseful for what he did he cannot stomach the public's perception of him everybody on the outside kept claiming i'm a sociopath he said and i just love that he doesn't understand that he ruined people's lives like there's one thing for madoff to be like i mean okay i committed a giant fraud and it was a shitty situation but for him to be like i don't understand why people thought that they could retire with the money they gave me but then they're now cleaning homes is such a big deal that that thing where he said like i was doing great in prison reminded me that you know, in the real Arrested Development, Michael kills himself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He hangs himself in the model home. Mm-hmm. And then the rafter falls down. <laughs> I'm just looking at the Wikipedia here for his incarceration, which tells you the level of research I contributed to this episode. <laughs> but apparently, like, he got involved in a couple of altercations in prison, but then later on he got the friendship with Carmine uh, Persecco that we've mentioned here. Mm-hmm. But apparently there's some sort of altercation where he got slapped because he changed the channel on the prison TV. <laughs> and then it's believed right. that Persecco had intimidated the inmate who slapped Madoff in the face <laughs> after that. In in the book, they say that some of the media reports about his fights were overstated just for sensationalism. Mm. Um, though it's, I mean, he's in prison. It's entirely possible he's been in a few. I mean, like his kids hated him after this whole thing. Uh, there was a quote from Andrew Madoff, and he said, "Even on my deathbed, I will never forgive him for what he did." And like, it really Madoff was fucked up. But this is a man that has cancer. That's like, I'm gonna die soon, and I still will not forgive this motherfucker. Like, um, from I remember watching Wizard of Lies when it had come out, and the scene where Madoff, De Niro's Madoff, and his wife are gonna take sleeping pills to kill themselves over Christmas, but then the next day they just wake up well rested. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. And yeah, like they took they took a bunch of Ambien and I don't know if this was meant as a joke, but it was a nice touch that while they're like starting to fade out Judy Garland singing on the TV. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's one of those things where like at the end there I feel like Madoff had a couple of exits but then kept like almost narrowly avoiding them somehow. Yeah, but that was Andrew's mistake because you know, actually, forgiving your father does cure your cancer. <laughs> it's 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 caused by stress and guilt. Mm-hmm. 
And you got to clear the chakras. You got to drink kombucha with it too. Forgiveness and kombucha cures cancer. Mm -hmm. GT Dave taught us this. Um, from that list of celebrities, Malkovich has my favorite quote over the entire incident. Uh, John Malkovich says, I don't view it as a negative experience. To me, it was, you think you have a bunch of money and you don't. So what? Most people don't have a lot of money. I think it kind of reconnected me to how most people live all the time. And unlike a lot of people that were involved in the Madoff thing, I could just go back to work and it was fine. So I, a relatively healthy <laughs> uh, uh, reflection on the whole thing by Malkovich. Because, uh, you know, anytime interviewers ask, the people aren't reporting how much they lost. Because, like, everyone from, Andy mentioned that list to, like, Larry King from one report i found that the mets owner uh kilpin the fuck's that guy's name uh yeah the mets owner wilpin supposedly lost 500 million over the whole madoff deal so like Hell yeah. you know the mets never win but that's like one pitcher <laughs> it's just one pitching prospect that doesn't pan out that's nothing so yeah Oh, one other thing. Apparently, in I think 2011, it was discovered that Madoff sent a letter to his daughter-in-law that said that he was being treated in prison, quote, like a mafia don. Mm -hmm. And they just have a quote from it here, quote, they call me either Uncle Bernie or Mr. Madoff. I can't walk anywhere without someone shouting their greetings and encouragement to keep my spirit up. It's really <laughs> quite sweet how concerned everyone is about my well-being, including the oh. staff. It's much safer here than walking the streets of New York. <laughs> He's just like that Jeffrey Tambor character, all the way down to like uh, unsolicitedly squeezing women's asses. <laughs> and, you know, he has asked Donald Trump for a commutation or pardon of his sentence. Yeah, Trump White House never responded, but we are recording this January 11th. So right. <laughs> you might yeah. know something we don't by the time we release this one. So, um,. He was a great guy. Uh, he made a lot of people a lot of money, and we wish him the best and uh, all of his future pursuits. Yeah, free my mans. He has chronic kidney failure, according to his lawyers, so he has to be let out of prison. <laughs> you know that kind of chronic kidney failure that's going to kill you in a year, mm -hmm. but then you live another right. 20 years that's after right. you get out of prison? <laughs> that's what he has, man. Free my man, Donald Trump. Pardon him. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. Uh, appreciate all your reviews. Uh, got some new ones in here, and we'll check out some of the billionaires that are mentioned in our new reviews. Appreciate the, to all the new cats posting stuff. Uh, I'm Yogi Paywall. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting on Patreon. I'm Andy Palmer. Uh, keep your eyes out for great investment opportunities. Yeah, 15 to 20%. That should be the minimum of what you're in. You're a Grubstakers <laughs> listener. You don't accept less than 15% annual return, okay? <laughs> yeah, fucking 10%. That's for Red Scare listeners, okay? That's pussy shit. Hey! No touch! No touch! No touch! No touch! I won't stop. <laughs> that, did, that did not work. <laughs> 